What's going on, Outsiders? It's Outside the Mic. I'm Jared Weimer. And I'm Martin Meyer. This is a podcast where we banter all matters music. Yeah, mostly. Mostly we do. Mostly. Mostly. Not every day. Sometimes we take large breaks, you know, a couple months. Really? Incidentally? Yeah. It's it's kind of interesting. I think you were uh, talking about how is it going to sound because we're not, um, well, yeah, it's a little bit different, and you might be thinking, who the hell are these guys? But uh, we're back. We're back, we're back. and yeah. you are. it is a little different. We have some updates to to uh, update you all, and uh, yeah, we'll just get into that now. We've been a little MIA for some, <laughs> some good reasons, mm-hmm. uh, and so here it is. Uh, back in September, uh, I relocated to Colorado. And Marty's still in South Dakota. And so given we used to record in the studio together, uh, OTM, but now we're experimenting with Zoom. And mm-hmm. uh, so far, so good. The technology is amazing. It's uh, pretty cool how how organic it sounds, how realistic. We were afraid that doing it over a video call, sometimes there can be a lot of lag. And so uh, really, we've been pretty impressed with all the little tests that we've done. So yeah, that's, that's what's new with us anyway. Yeah, it's interesting because as you say that, and we did a test and actually um, did sort of some editing with it to see where we were going to be at with this. And and it sounded really good, but I did just notice it'll be interesting to look look back on this now because I did notice some of those weird little alien sounds that happen. Yes. Uh, but <laughs> but And that is the big drawback with recording yeah. is you will have those little algorithmic sounds those little errors that we we didn't have before in the in the studio recording in the same place but uh, if that's if that's the least that happens i can't talk but if that's what happens we're good (laughs) (laughs) yeah well so that's um i guess that's your uh that's more or less our apology yeah yeah and we just want to we we check the stats we're still you know we still keep a good eye on how otm is doing and our our library i think we have like over 30 episodes just is really cool but you guys are still listening you're still going back and listening to old episodes i mean lavian rose season what two yeah uh is still our best episode and i think we just hit over like a couple hundred listens it's really cool it was like 400 Um, and something yeah, something yeah. really cool just within the last couple of months. So, yeah, thank you guys for still hanging on, even as we're trying to figure out our our new season we're in. Not season episode wise, but season of life. Yeah, yeah. How poetic! <laughs> did you did you miss me? Did you miss us? I, did you miss us? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, we Maybe miss not. you guys. We miss doing it. We miss the the creative juices that it allows. Uh, just. Uh, for us to flow in our life and, and uh, already being back into it, just with a few test videos that we've done, mm-hmm. uh, I'm starting to think of episodes and, and different stories to do. So getting in the light juices of it all, flowing, get yeah, the juices yeah. flowing. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. It. So the, the uh, last episode we released was on June 7th, 7th 
Uh, So we're still in 2021. So it was still this year. It hasn't been that terribly long ago, I guess, but it was called Louis Louis. uh, Yeah. And you talked about the, the big investigation, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, all that about that being a nasty, naughty song or something. Uh, And then we talked a little bit about the, the, uh, my way killings, uh, (laughs) in the Philippines with the karaoke bars. But what we, (laughs) what we had done prior to that, well, actually, yeah, I mean, I guess that that pretty much sums it up. And we do apologize, outsiders, for not letting you know what's going on a little bit earlier. But uh, yeah, Jarrett moving on to bigger, better things. And uh, Easton and Jarrett moved to Denver. And uh, pretty much I was just here. And I don't know. What else can I say? Oh, didn't do it. Now. <laughs> here, let's try that again. Abandoned. Abandoned. Hugo <laughs> girl, you should know better. I would never abandon you. <laughs> oh, we had to bring her back just for a second, but she kind of didn't want to, you know. She didn't like, want to. It just had to like bump start her a little bit there. She I was guess. like, she was like, uh, actually on second thought, let him suffer. That's what she said. <laughs> I felt it. Did she sound a little different? To she you? sounded a little salty, honestly. Um, that's what I thought. I, it just maybe they just, you know randomly change it now and then i don't know um let's see here let's listen to something else quick oh i had to enter a new word um and then it wouldn't enter it on here okay we'll get back to google bird. Google girl sometime so google anyway bird. <laughs> google bird this is not going to be a full episode this is just no. our our transition back into making you aware of what's going on respecting our outsiders enough and uh, admitting that we miss it enough that we got to start doing this a little bit again. But we do have something exciting for you. We actually, on February 15th, which was, I don't think it was our very first episode, but it was probably our second or third from season three, we did Woodstock and we called it part one at the time (laughs) because we were so excited about it that we were going to do more and uh, you did a, a introduction, and it was John Roberts, correct? Mm-hmm. And, John Roberts uh, and Joel. Joel Rosenman. Rosenman, right. Yeah. Right. Who originally had the concept for Woodstock. Right. And, yeah, and I think rap, rounded up the money to get Woodstock up and rolling. Uh, obviously, there's lots of other people involved besides oh, yeah. them. But, yeah, I got really excited about it. Um and I was so stoked that you chose that to discuss. There's so many different avenues to take with that. As far as part two goes, we mm-hmm. could have talked about so many, di- so many different elements, but I think, and I don't want to give too much away. I'll let you do it. But I think the direction that you went Marty with this amazing. You well, pulled something out. And the, and the, anyways, that's all I'm going to say. I hope so. I hope so. I, I got excited. Jarrett touched on it and I realized that, if I had indeed seen the movie, it was probably so long ago that I didn't really remember. So I wanted to watch the movie right away. I started looking at some documentaries. You know, that was my sort of my area. I, era. I was a little young. I was um, when Woodstock happened. I was six years old, but I'd really remember it in the culture, the pop culture, the news at the time when Viet. Vietnam was going on. My brother had bought the album, and I remember my mom getting upset because they were they were cussing the album. She's like, you cannot play this in this house or whatever. So I was intrigued, and I started checking stuff out. Well, I happened to be talking to my friend Bob Newland about it, and he mentioned that his brother Wilbur uh, has a, a gal who's a friend that used to 
be partners with Michael Wadley, who is the director for the Woodstock movie. And the Woodstock movie, by the way, to this day, uh, as far as I think the amount of money that it has made in distribution is how they they measure that. It is the number one documentary film of all time Wow! to, to this day. So, That's all, yeah, to hold on to that yeah. for this long, to hold on to that place for this long. That's great. That's yeah, great. That tells you something. I mean, and, if, and to be honest, as epic as Woodstock, the concert was, I don't think it would have gone down in history quite as. Uh, epically, if that's a word, uh, if there had not been a, a movie to accompany it and a movie that was so cutting edge at the time. So going back to the story, uh, I said, wow, do you think I could get in touch with this gal? That'd be really interesting to try to get her on outside the mic or talk to her. So right. I called her. her name was Dulcie Ghost, and I called her and was able to get a hold of her. She lives in Wyoming now. I think Laramie, Wyoming. Oh, wow if I'm correct on that. And I had a really, really nice conversation with her. It seemed like there was uh, a lot of, she had a lot of stories she could tell. And I was just trying to see if I could narrow it down to something that we could discuss. And then she happened to mention to me that she is in touch with the associate producer, one of the associate producers, I think, uh, I think the main associate producer, there might've been a couple guys, pardon my ignorance there. But anyway, Dale Bell, uh, she mentioned that she's in touch with him and that maybe I could get in touch with him. So I felt kind of bad because I sort of abandoned pursuing an interview with her because I thought I saw, you know, a bigger apple higher on the tree that I wanted to to go for. So, And I may be just recalling this wrong but didn't she kind of say well i wasn't i'm not sure if i would be the one you would want to but uh here's what i know or here's what i was involved with she was really nice in that regards right i remember you telling me yeah she's very modest about her involvement and 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 all of that and but how cool to be experiencing it in real time when it was happening she definitely probably has some great stories to tell so yeah and who knows you know if we end up you know, un, unwinding this one a little bit more, maybe that'll, that'll happen. But no, she wasn't upset or at all. And she was, uh, you know, she acknowledged as well that though there's a lot of stuff that she could talk about that if I was able to get a hold of Dale, that that would be, she was kind of excited for that opportunity as well. Nice. And so I was able to get a hold of Dale Bell and it took, that's part of the reason for the lapse as well, because once we realized you were moving, we kind of had this on our on our radar to get this interview done Mm -hmm. and it took a while with his schedule and with my schedule and with your schedule to finally get it all done but I did get a chance and I mainly just uh you know I guess I'll call it an interview but really what I wanted to do is just get Dale on that's how we tested out Zoom as well uh he introduced it or has released it as a video. I don't have that exact link yet. His website that you should all check out and check out his blog is uh, called mediapolicycenter.org. And um, yeah, I'd like to to help promote that for Dale because they have a lot of good projects and causes on there. We'll give you more information later, but you'll be able to hear the interview just as soon as we're done babbling about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on, and that was one thing because of we, I was in that transitional time of moving uh, and it kind of worked out really well. We decided early on, you had built a relationship with him by just touching base with him and talking with him yeah. that we agreed that just to have you do the, I guess we're calling it the interview. Yeah. Um, instead of having both of us there trying to, you know, ask him questions and, and get him to talk uh, you guys 
sat together and, and I think it worked out super well that way. Um, so you won't hear me in the interview. I'm not, I wasn't present for that part, but we figured we'd record the intro later. Uh, yeah. just to say, I'm, you know, I'm still very much involved, but you guys did this awesome interview and I mean, I just can't wait to release this thing. Yeah. It just made sense to just have it be kind of a one-on-one and really, like I said, I really just wanted to hear because I had, I had seen a couple videos that he had done in the past and he's really, uh, brilliant, uh, eloquent, passionate about Woodstock to this day. And I just enjoy listening to him talk about it. And so that's, that's really what I wanted to, uh, you know, it's like you get your, you kind of hone your chops on things. And, um, you and I have never done a lot of, well, we did one other interview on the show and that was just kind of having fun hanging out with Adam that time. But, uh, but we just, we're used to talking to each other. So, um, having a, Having somebody like that who I really respect and look up to and get a little bit nervous talking to as well. But I, I thought it went well, and I really just tried to get out of the way so we could hear what Dale had to say about his experience at Woodstock and what he, to this day, still really feels is important about the message of Woodstock as well. So I think outsiders are going to enjoy it. And uh, This is an know. absolute treat. I mean, this is a man that was was able to be present for that yeah for that documentary and, and for, I mean, for Woodstock and you've really uncovered a awesome little gem that we can, that we can give insight to with the outsiders. I think that's, that's great. This is going to be awesome. Yeah. And excited than anybody else. It's really, yeah, he's, it's inspiring because here's a guy who's, you know, he's in his seventies now and he's still one of the days when I called him, he was doing, uh, he was like running or jogging stairs somewhere in Santa Monica. So are you kidding me? No, serious. I can't even jog stairs right now. I'm 26 (laughs) in the seventies. Good on him. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was impressive. I was, uh, and like I said, he's sharp, sharp as attack and just really fun to listen to. So yeah, that's, that's it though. We're going to try to wrap it up so we can get into that. And then you outsiders that are still hanging with us, we appreciate that. And you can expect more from us. I don't know what kind of a schedule we're going to do, but we're going to make sure we start, getting some stuff released. And obviously people are still checking it out. We still have stats that are climbing up on Podbean for us. So we appreciate yep. that. Uh, and yeah, now we can uh, now we can feel a little bit better about not just leaving you hanging. Not go- <laughs> we didn't ghost you guys. We're still yeah. here. And yeah. yeah, like Marty said, moving forward, we're not really sure on the schedule. It probably won't be like a bi-weekly deal. Uh, it'll probably, we'll, we'll do you know, uh, when we can, or we'll try to, we're still ironing that out uh, as far as how scheduled it'll be, but we're still wanting to do the Facebook lives, try to do those things, interact with you guys. Um, so 2022 is just going to bring a new style, a new season, obviously a new season of OTM, but more in the sense of just maybe how we structure things. I don't know. It's exciting. Yeah. We have yet to, uh, <laughs> to figure that style out ourselves, but, uh, um, yeah, and Merry Christmas. I we're our happy let's say happy holidays, depending on happy when this holiday. gets gets released as well. So um yeah, uh, we're just we're just stoked to be back. Hope you enjoy the interview with Dale Bell. Remember, as always, check out outsidethemike.com or be sure to find us on uh while well, you found us here. So find us on any other podcast podcast streaming platforms that That's you it. may search on. So thanks, Jarrett. Thank you. And hey, Marty, thanks for doing this interview. And again, Outsiders, I hope you guys really enjoy this. And I know I did. So don't hit stop. Here is the interview with Dale Bell, associate producer, Woodstock Movie, recorded September 30th, 2021.
Welcome, outsiders, to a really special episode of Outside the Mic. Today, I am graced with the opportunity of having a conversation with Dale Bell, who is the associate producer of the original Woodstock movie slash documentary. Uh, Dale began as a storyteller with a camera, and he has raised or helped to raise some $80 million from foundations, corporations, and individuals for global media projects that reflect his and their lifelong commitment to the clamoring issues of social justice, inequity, race, climate, public health, and journalism. While in high school, he spent his summers hitchhiking and riding the rails out west seeking others, people unlike himself and unlike his schoolmates and family friends. As an undergraduate at Princeton, he managed, produced, and directed 24 plays over three seasons of summer stock. Dale's diverse broadcast and film projects have won the Academy Award for the Woodstock movie. The Peabody, two Emmys, four British uh, Academy Film Awards, two Christophers. His work has been seen on NET, PBS, BBC, A&E, Discovery, TBS, ABC, NBC, and the History Channel. In 1999, Dale joined his New York City friend and colleague, Harry Wyland. I hope I'm saying that correctly whose Johnny Cash, The Man, His World, and Music first brought them together in 1968. They got together to co-found the Media Policy Center, a 501c3 honored by the Ashoka Fellowship of 3,800 Global Social Entrepreneurs. Welcome, Dale, to Outside the Mic. Well, thank you. (laughs) Sorry Uh, that's so long. Yeah. Well, you know, there I, I cut a few things off, but I bet it probably could go on even longer than that with the extensive no, it, career that uh, you've had. I'm still working. That's important. There's still that, things to do. That is important. That is extremely important. Uh, I am just so excited by this opportunity. And just to let our listeners know briefly, uh, we did an episode about Woodstock, and it was yeah. how Woodstock came to be, talking about John... Roberts and Dale Rosenman and Joel, uh, Joel Rosenman. Oh, you are correct. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and definitely feel free to correct me at any time because I'm just <laughs> learning with all this. Uh, Joel Rosenman. And I have a friend named Bob Newland and he happens to have a brother, Wilbur, who was friends with Dulcie Ghosts. And you, of course, are familiar with Dulcie. And I had a few conversations yeah. with her. She was a partner with Michael Wadley for years, correct? Yes. Excellent. He got me her number. I talked to her and I enjoyed talking with her. But as soon as she kind of she dangled that carrot out there that I might be able to get a hold of you. (laughs) And I immediately started looking for videos online and I found the one that you you did a presentation at the Rock Gods Must Be Crazy about how the film Woodstock almost never happened. And and indeed, that is true. I mean, just days before it was never going to happen. I was so intrigued by that, and immediately I felt that my quest was to try to see if I couldn't get on here and have a conversation with you. And then you, uh, my other introduction to you was on your website, mediapolicycenter.org. You directed me to a clip that you had done called The Movie, Jimi Hendrix, and Our Future Together. That is true. He haunts me. He haunts me every day. I say, when I brush my teeth, I wonder what I can do to help Jimmy achieve what he talked about 
on Monday morning, August 18 at 845 for three minutes and 46 seconds. It was, uh, it was monumental, monumental. And I, I have failed. I have failed, Jimmy, alas, and I think a lot of us in this country and in this world have failed Jimmy. I think he threw down a major gauntlet yes. to us. You know, uh, here he is. Nice. He's on the front cover of the book, one of the two books. But Jimmy, Jimmy was extraordinary, is extraordinary, remains extraordinary as a, as a challenge for all of us to meet. So keep going. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more with you. And I have your book right here, too. We're, don't uh, Lest we should forget, we're going to mention that you also have a new publication, another version of this book that has just been released. Uh, I, yeah, I'll do that right now. There you go. There with we Janice go. Joplin on the cover. Very thick. Lots of text. Very few pictures. Actually, no pictures except Janice. Wow. But lots of stories, Rashomon stories from many of the people who helped make the movie and some people who were there on the site and some people who we picked up along the way. Nice. Fun reading. Fun Ex reading. Very fun. I'm looking for Mine is on its way. I still don't have it in my hands, but it's on its ah. way. Explain to our listeners, because I had to look that up, what a Rashomon story is. A Rashomon story is something that uh, inspired Spike Lee, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's a Kurosawa uh, kind of phrase, although Rashomon has been invented long before Kurosawa came on the scene. But he made a film that was a Rashomon film. It is take an event, a talk, an event, an experience, and then have it viewed and experienced by a whole array of different people, some of whom were never there, some of whom were there and saw it differently. What it does is it enables uh, anybody to really kind of get a, not an individual experience, but a collective experience. And in the case of Woodstock, this was a, I'm gonna say it's a communitarian experience. We were a community not only of filmmakers when we were up there on the site, but we were part of that 500,000, 482,000, 394,000, depending upon who was at the latrine at the same time, <laughs> uh, or on the morning of Jimi Hendrix on Monday morning, maybe 20,000 or 30,000 or 10,000 people, all muddy. They all had an experience. And what I tried to do with the this larger book with the textbook is to allow people to tell their stories basically unedited. We had had reunions periodically after the finish, the, the completion of the movie, and we would gather in various sites, uh, New York, LA primarily. Uh, and you'd hear people talking about, oh, well, I remember this and I remember that, and oh, this happened. And do you remember that when that happened? Well, this allowed this idea that I formed in 1999 to create a Rashomon reunion, if you will, on paper, because we couldn't get together that year. Uh, that's what it is, an experiential experience. And it generally involves the stories and pictures along with 
uh, does that qualify as being Rashomon to have the pictures with it? Or it's just yes, but in this case, in the case of my publisher, he wanted one book that had many of the pictures, and Barry Levine, our photographer, who happened to be assigned, he came up with us uh, in August of 1969 and documented so many of all of the people who we had brought together, the 40, 45 people uh, who found their way up there so that there are pictures in a separate book, uh, Lynn Ann Sackett and Barry Levine married uh, different names, uh, have published uh, a batch of really fabulous books. And I was just with them literally a couple of days ago for brunch uh, out here at Friends, John Binder and Jeannie Field, also people who were part of the Woodstock experience and who have written their stories uh, in the book. Uh, and we were all just sitting around a, uh, a breakfast table with my wonderful French toast, my wife Liz, and I on Mandeville Canyon going back 52 years, 53 years. I had given John Binder his first job in 1965 with this guy who was his partner, Michael Wadley. Wadley and Binder had not filmed together as a gig, a paid gig before. And I was luckily in a position, fortunately in a position to be able to say, well, let's try one day. And if it doesn't work out, we'll all be friends and we'll pay you $125 a day each and what, $50 for your camera gear and sound gear and let's go out and, 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 and see whether we're in sync with each other. Wow. Well, that was 65. That was about uh, April of 1965. Yeah. Wow. That, you know, as I explore Woodstock, which I realized after doing that episode that I was completely fascinated with Woodstock. I was only about seven years old, and I think I had related this story to you just briefly. My first experience my awareness of Woodstock was my oldest brother had bought the LP and uh -huh. we had an old Sears turntable. Uh, I think it was set up in our dining room at the time and he got it in from the record store, I would assume, came home and put it on and the whole family was there and, and immediately we, we started listening and we were enjoying it. And then it came to country Joe McDonald with uh, give me an F, give me a U, give me a C. And my, and my mom immediately said, you will not play that. Get out of the room. Yes, yes. Island, right. Yeah, you could not play this anymore. And that, of course, intrigued me at the time. Uh, but I, I don't believe, you know, I think there was a moment uh, a couple years after that where I did see the Woodstock movie, but I didn't recall it as well. And I knew I had to see that again. And immediately after seeing your clip on your website, uh, just the energy that you have and the sincerity and the sentiment that you have from doing this, I, I just realized there's so much information and I wish we had even more time because obviously anything we do is just scratching the surface uh, of Woodstock. And I started watching the documentaries and once I watched the movie again and it, it was just so brilliant and the way it climaxed towards the end after seeing Max Yasger and I was literally in tears by the end of the movie Jimmy's performance was so epic and poetic, and it just, it, you could not have hired somebody to do a better soundtrack for the end of that movie. It's just amazing. We, <laughs> oh, there's so many stories to, to, to talk about here, but the, um, I'll go to the ending, to the ending first, because 
we had we had edited a film that we did not allow Warner Brothers to see, okay. even okay. though they were the financiers of the film. We discovered in January of 1970 that they were in fact stealing a copy of the picture optical that was being printed at Technicolor. We got a copy to use as an editing uh, tool, uh, but they were purloining a second copy in New York with the anticipation that they might indeed cut it differently than we would. Wow. You see? Mm -hmm. Discovered this on about the second time that it had occurred when an invoice came in from Technicolor and I saw two copies. And I called them and I said, well, what in Sam Hill? Who's getting the second copy? We're getting one copy. Who's getting the second copy? And they said, well, we have a deal, always been the same deal with Warner Brothers, that for every copy of Rushes that go to the producers, Warner Brothers gets a copy. And I said, deal's off. Oh. And Bob Maurice and I and Michael and Thelma got together in our little conference room, Yucca Street, L.A., and said, what's going on? And we determined, and Bob, of course, fisticuffs in hand, uh, he got on the next plane, went to New York, and stopped it right away, told Warner Brothers, we were not going to edit anything more. We were frozen. We had taken the negative, the precious negative, and brought it into our office, all 365,000 feet of negative wow. in cans, in cans, separate cans, all labeled, brought it in and hired an armed guard 24 hours a day just to substantiate our claim to ownership of the negative. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. So within two or three days, Bob achieved a goal. Uh, Warner Brothers uh, technical, sorry, stopped sending a second copy to Warner Brothers right away. We proceeded to edit the way uh, without any of their interference, but we had to show them something. I mean, it was March. We had mixed it. We had sh created this four-hour optical of all of the images from beginning Sydney Westerfield down to beyond Jimi Hendrix. And we then had a fight with Warner Brothers. First, they did not want to have anybody else except the suits look at the film. Okay. Excuse me? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> we all looked at each other and said, Wait a minute. We don't want 25 suits making judgments on this movie. We want some corollary kind of experience, Rashomon experience, if you will. So we invited 120, <clears throat> excuse me, students from UCLA Film School and from USC Film School to join the suits. And the suits said no. And the guards at the uh, gates at Warner Brothers said no. <laughs> but we had 125 voices protesting outside the gates of Warner Brothers, and we said, let them in, or we'll bring the press. So what? Said So they, all the students were allowed in. They came into the big old projection room. They all found seats on the floor. It was pretty crowded. And then the suits came in. <laughs> the suits and the students, little grass here and there. Mm-hmm. 
all watched four hours uninterrupted, no potty breaks, no intermission, no nothing. And it was the sound and the picture and the projectionists were totally in sync with this, uh, with this screening because they had seen the film before. Remember, they were projectionists. They had radiated out uh, throughout the studio this whole, the power of what we were creating. They felt it viscerally from the mixing booth to the optical uh, projectionist. We were synchronizing it in a room and we would be in that room every day looking at our material. Wow. Well, so the, the, end of, <laughs> the end of this is uh, the film is over. There's cheering and hubble baloo and whatever. The next day, Warner Brothers demands that we go into a, uh, a conference room with Ted Ashley and John Calley and Fred Weintraub and um, my God, I, I'm forgetting all of Fred Talmadge um, and the, the Warner Brothers group. And we had our group. We were about half a dozen, Bob and me and Michael and Thelma, Larry, I think, mm -hmm. Larry Johnson. And Warner Brothers said, the film's too long. Four hours. We're never going to be able to exhibit this. The exhibitors want two hours and 15 minutes, two hours and 20 minutes, two hours and 30 minutes. Sure. And we said, basically, F you. We're not going to uh, do this. And we fought and screamed at each other and whatever. Went away. And we ourselves decided that we would take it down some. They said, no, Hendrix. We don't want anything as awful sounding as that Star Spangled Banner. We don't want that in our theaters, and the exhibitors don't want that. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you can see the result. It was three hours, four minutes. We cut Jimi Hendrix down from, it had been playing at about 15, 18 minutes. We cut it down to about nine minutes, mm -hmm. which included the three minutes, 46 seconds of uh, Star Spangled Banner. And everybody was extremely pleased, particularly when we went into movie theaters and Ted Ashley came up and congratulated all of us and said, you guys were right. You were absolutely right. Thank God you did what you did. Da -da 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 -da. They had also demanded back in August and September that we create a 90 minute film for December of 1969. So we could take, they could take advantage of the, um, the college crowd coming home for holidays. Sure. And we said, absolutely no. You know, wow. there were a lot of battles like that. I thank God that you guys had the fortitude to play hardball with them. Uh, <laughs> so at what point? And, and let me just pause and give, give real uh, credit here to Bob Maurice, who was passed. But he was as tough as nail and as funny as he could be. Uh, used to climb big uh, beams, you know, 20 stories up, 30 stories up. And he was capable of absolutely anything, a great philosopher, musician, uh, and just as tenacious as, as he could be. So R.I.P. Bob. Oh, yeah, R.I.P. That Bob Maurice? Yeah. Okay, I, I, in reading, I was always pronouncing it Morris, but... Uh, no, Maurice. He was very French, grew up in... Harry Town. C'est Bob Maurice. Maurice, oui, voilà. <laughs> well, so obviously he uh, he sort of spearheaded that challenging, challenging them all the time. But you guys were also in a position to stand by your work as well. Yes, uh, And absolutely. you believed in it. Yeah. Well, and thank goodness. I mean, I could not imagine a film 
uh, being judged and edited based on just the suits uh, and their input. You needed your audience. Um, and then that's that's what you did. Oh, no problem. Oh. Uh, okay, we're, go ahead. We're casual on, on outside the mic. We've had that happen as well. <laughs> we have phone okay. calls. <laughs> Told one of my boys I'll call him back. Okay, very good. So at what point when you have a, a movie with rights like this, so you guys are you guys are able to play hardball and you're able to negotiate this, is there at some point in time where it gets completely handed over to them and then you no longer have that right anymore? Or did you that's, that continue that's on delivery? Upon on delivery. delivery. So okay. it was March twenty sixth when okay. we created eight prints through Technicolor. Uh, of the of the film and played them in six cities, as I recollect: New York, L.A., Chicago, I think Houston or Dallas, Toronto, so that it was international. Okay. Yeah. And so they, it didn't take them very long to figure out that you guys were were right <laughs> in your interpretation of the way the so film. They, all they had to do was to to wake up the morning before it was going to be uh, exhibited: Translux East, Translux West. Um, and there was lines. There were lines totally around the movie theaters. I mean, three, four, five, six deep, you know, uh, long-haired hippie freaks with their gal friends. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, th this, was, this was a crowd. And, of course, the Daily News pictures of all of this didn't, didn't hurt. Yeah, you know, I, I've come to realize through this little adventure that I'm on, this Woodstock adventure, that... Uh, as epic as the concert itself was, and I never realized this until now, it would not have gone down in history without this movie uh, as well. No. Because so many people. Big. Yeah. yeah. You know, it would have been postage stamp. And yeah. you would have had to have put together all 500,000 of those people to have them talk about their experiences. What we tried to do, and, and Mike Wadley and Thelma, uh, a really credit to them. And obviously to Larry Johnson and Danny Wallen and Marty Scorsese and Stan Warnow and Jerry Huggins and Yubin Yi And I, I mean, I could go on. There were about 200 people uh, who helped to make this movie happen from the first day until the last day. Um, but it was, it was our goal to immerse an audience in a movie theater with surround experience, i.e. Rashomon. So that if you were bored with what was happening on the left side of the panel, you could go to the middle panel and then you could go from the middle panel to the right panel. And then you could hear the surround sound of chipmunk. So that all the time you were constantly feeling as though you were surrounded by this thing and you were sitting in mud or if you were lucky on a dry patch <laughs> yeah. uh, somewhere or in somebody's lap or somebody was singing, sitting in your lap, as in the movie theater, many people were. Uh, in each other's laps, so to speak, yeah. um, you'd have a real live experience. And obviously the music was the dominant force, but it's also the words. Yeah. You can go to a website now, I think it's called Woodstock, the movie transcript, which has compiled this wonderful website from the beginning of Sidney Westerfeld you know, at the top, at the end, where he's standing on the steps, stuttering about, I think this is going to be the biggest, the biggest thing in the newspapers or the, 
you know, all the way to the end of Jimi Hendrix. Wow. And Words, of lyrics, and what is spoken. Uh, and what what's that website again? I think it's called Woodstock the Movie Transcript. Woodstock, Woodstock the Movie Transcript. Um, and we're gonna... and it's, a, it's of the three-hour, four-minute film that won the Oscar. That's what is represented there. They did not make a transcript of the director's cut that came in 1999. That was going to be one of my questions when that came out. I think that's the one that I ended up watching. So, 1999. And as I, 1999. As I understand, the the uh, having the three segments or two segments at a time, that had not been done prior to this movie in a, in a documentary. The last time that multiple images had been used was in the creation of Napoleon in 1928 or 29 by, and I'm going to forget his name, Abel Gantz, French guy, Napoleon, voila, by Maurice, no, no, Abel Gantz, voila, you never oui, know. Oui. More French. <laughs> right. But there was three images, three images. Nobody had bullet. The movie with Steve McQueen tried to use a little bit of multiple imaging, but nobody had left, center, right, and wraparound soundtracks that rotated between the speakers as the image changed. Right. So that if you had a helicopter and it was zooming around on the right side of you, and then all of a sudden it came on on the right screen and across the center screen and out the left side, and it went away. Yeah. We designed that. It was horrendous to do it. I mean, mm -hmm. technically complicated. The Warner Brothers mixing studio uh, was 1930s. Uh, I think, uh, what was the last thing the, that they had done of this complication? Al Jolson's story. Wow. You know, so we had to upgrade the Warner Brothers uh, dubbing stage. We had to employ optical houses on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis from the 1st of January until the middle of March because everybody had to create an optical. We had shot everything in 16 millimeter, different stocks, 70. 7241, 7242, and 7255 because of different light densities and what you would use at daylight and dusk and nighttime and whatever. And then you'd have to process each one of those separately. Then you'd have to sync them up. Then you'd have to edit them. And then you'd have to put them onto a table and indicate to somebody else how to re-photograph them together, either single image or double image or triple image, or in the case of the who, five images. I mean, impossible to do. Nobody had ever done anything like that. There was never a computer or a even a FedEx or a fax machine or a little iPhone or anything else like that. This was all, you know, one in one make two. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that in reading your book fascinates me. And I think, you know, especially for younger people, they don't realize that, you know, there, there was no digital back there. There was no syncing. You talked about, I think it was your idea to have a, a clock. Was it a, some kind of a, a clock that could be viewed from where the cameras were and you would take a shot of that. On stage. Yeah. So prior, was that one of those that flipped the little numbers down? Or? Right, a digital clock. Couldn't yeah. even find a digital clock that I could transport up there and they, they could be plugged in. 
<laughs> so what did you, what did, where did you find something? What did you use? We didn't use anything. There, you know, people were taking, you know, uh, photographs with flashes at night. Mm -hmm. And if you have one flash and you can kind of hear what the sound is sort of near that, then you sync the image by flash bulbs. Wow. One, two. So you put another image next to that as one, two. It's the same rhythm. It's the same thing. So that, those two things go together. Okay. And then you, you take the second one down and you use the first one as a base. And then you add a third one and go one, two, and you try and find the one, two. I mean, this was, I mean, this was rampant. Night footage was easier to sync because of flash bulbs than was daylight footage. So you didn't end up getting the clock. That was an idea, but you oh, didn't have no. it. No, it was oh, just a wonderful God. idea that uh, <laughs> Marty Andrews might have been able to install it. Yeah. <laughs> Not possible. That is that is incredible. And now you had, when it comes to the actual uh, concert sound, that was coming through a board, and was that being tracked like to a reel to reel, or uh, because that was a different source, your audio for the music. Okay, I, I am going to I'm going to bumble along here because uh, I, I got to remember the names. The guy who was liaising with the uh, Bill Hanley. Bill Hanley was the lead sound audio technician hired by the festival people. When we arrived, he had no idea about how to give us any of the audio. He had eight tracks. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Not 16, not 32, not 64, eight wow. tracks. Okay. And we took one of them we stole it literally for sync sound so that we could have a synchronous pulse on the track that would be in sync with the 15, count them, 5, 10, 15 cameras that were up on random places, totally disconnected from one another. Wow. Okay, so everybody was an independent source. On stage, Mike Wadley, with the help of Thelma, and Larry uh, Johnson and Marty Scorsese and a whole batch of other people who were underneath the stage changing magazines, Michael was able to kind of say, I've got the centerpiece. I'm right in front. You guys, you go off to the left. You go to the right. You go at, at 2 o'clock, and we want somebody at high noon. So I'm at 6. You're at high noon. And then whoever is still standing, you get into the two o'clock and the four o'clock positions. Wow. So from time to time, you might have five people on stage. You might have four. You might have one, depending upon whether they had film, whether they were still standing, they were taking a pee, they needed food <laughs> or other please specify. I mean, it was, Wadley was brilliant. He stood through it all, gyrated his body, was, you know, impeccable impeccable did you get any any sleep at any time um there was two or three hours a night for you know it was only a period of four days yeah you know so it wasn't like they were up for eight weeks with right. two or three you know there were a couple of b12 shots and a little bit of food scarfed here and there yeah you know no there was and and you slept in mud or on plywood under the stage, there was a small trailer truck that we had accessible to us. 
Wow, truly. It was in- stamina, but it was camaraderie. It was, we are at a happening, film what interests you. David Myers, who was our guru, 55 years old, please. The guy who with me is responsible for the Porter Sandman, oh. you know. Well, and you can uh, feel free to touch on that too, because I know, and that was something that uh, it was mentioned in the book that people, when that was first released, would generally there'd be a standing ovation when the that segment of the film was on. He, um, the, the guy's name, the Porter Sandman, was Tom Taggart, okay. who had a son who was at Woodstock and a son who was at Vietnam, and I went over. I saw that he had just approached the Porter Sands with his truck, and I knew exactly what he was done. I used to do this when I was hitchhiking in the West. I'd clean out porta-potties, you know? I know how to clean out a porta-potty. Okay. Uh, And uh, so I went up to him, and in my usual sort of East Coast uh, palaver, I took off my hand, and he took off his glove, and I shook hands with him and said, hi, we're making a film. Can we come over here and film what you're doing? He said, sure, absolutely fine. Go ahead, you know, put his glove back on, went back to work. David... Dear David Myers, my mentor, and so and the mentor for so many of the other camera people who were there then and who are now working today. Uh, David just finished up filming somebody. Uh, there was a, a couple copulating in the bushes. And I said, well, you want to change your lens, David? You know, I don't need this long, long, long lens. He said, don't worry. I got my 5.9. We'll do it. So he went over. And I just said, David, it's it's up to you. And of course, David's first words were, hmm, you're getting a little bit behind, aren't you? Excuse <laughs> me? I mean, what kind of irony is that? A little bit behind, David? And of course, Tom Taggart went through his motions and David went through his motions. And of course, the end of the whole sequence is not only is Tom saying, I'm happy to do it for these kids. I really respect what they're doing. I've got a son here and a son in Vietnam. That is the line that inevitably, whenever the film was shown initially, that was the line that got the standing ovation because it represented what the godmother of our movie imbued all of us with The godmother we consider was Aretha Franklin, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, was the value system that we all uh, carried with us, and to this day. So you put Aretha at the top, and you put Jimmy at the bottom, and you put Richie Havens up there saying, freedom, 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 and you have a sense Mm -hmm. about what the movie is really about, I think. I think the movie is really about, let's go, let's change things. Let's do something properly. Can we do it with respect? You know? Yes. Yes. Uh, That's part of the, you know, for me to be able to, and that's why I mentioned that having the movie, to be able to experience that. And obviously, like you said, four days to take all of that footage, all of what happened over that period of time. And I mean, as hard as it would be to, to boil that down to what they wanted, which was two hours and whatever. And you ended up with three hours, you said three hours and five minutes or? Four minutes, right. Yeah, I mean, that that's just brilliant because now years later, 50 plus years later, I can sit down and I can, in essence, you know, it's not the same as being there obviously, but it's about as close as you can get. And to see just the poetic, 
this the way it all came together and something like the Porta Sands man too to watch that and see how that could have been easily just like throwaway footage but then the line comes in at the end as you mentioned and it just gives you goosebumps when you're when you're watching that movie uh it was it was certainly meant to be the way everything ended up unfolding um how did you feel because when i'm reading this in your book and you talk about the producers for Woodstock talking about 50,000 people. So did you did you think it was just going to be 50,000 people? <laughs> well, this was Mike Lang on Saturday, the Saturday of August 8th, before just seven days before Friday, August 15th, which was the first day of the festival, the official festival itself. And Mike and... Uh, Mike Lang and I and John Roberts, no, John Roberts was not there, but John Morris, Stan Cohen, Chipmunk, Wadley, Maurice, Larry Johnson, I think Thelma was with us, uh, Chuck Levy, I think, was there, John Binder, I think, was there. This is the Saturday we went up in two cars uh, to find this place. The roads leading to this wonderful valley this this kind of glen where you know just wide enough for one tractor to go through wow. not two tractors if you want to get two tractors to go through these little side roads one had to go into the ditch the other one had to come up here you know and then you did this dosey do this was yeah. something that i learned in wyoming when i was driving tractors out there how you you know how do you how do you navigate on these little narrow spaces you go yes. off the side you want to kill this little rattlesnake in front of you? What are you going to do? <laughs> you know? So we're sitting, we're standing there on stage and we just ask for the lip on the front of the stage so that the camera crew would have a position that was basically theirs uh, that they could use. And so I says to Lang, how many people you expect? And he said, 50,000, something like that. That's what kind of what they were counting on. That's what the ticket sales were indicating. You know, ballpark who figure. Knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> and then you, I mean, it didn't take but, long. But what that prompted me to do and us to do, us to do, I don't want to just say me, but for us to do was to say, for us to be able to do this properly with Michael and I had a list of, of people who we could bring to it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 30, 40 people. Assistance, assistance to assistance. How could we? We had to get everybody up by Thursday morning. That was the goal. Thursday by noon. Mm -hmm. So this was Saturday. Could we aggregate this number of people and get them to come on their own dime because there was no money? Right. You want to share a weekend experience? Come on, come on, come on. You know, given your work before, you know, this is going to be a happenstance. You know, come along. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It that too, to be able to pull that off. And I, I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed by the thought of actually being there and what you had experienced at the time, uh, to, to suddenly realize that you had, I mean, the, I would think the, the maximum amount of people in your head, anybody would have been anticipating was maybe a hundred thousand. Nobody dreamed that there would be half a million people there, obviously. Um, yeah. Well, I was just I was just with uh, I told you before Barry Levine and David Myers. I was able to secure a helicopter for the two of them to go up under David's command 
and circle up above on Saturday late afternoon, which is when I think I, I was able to get the helicopter. And you could see, I mean, you couldn't, it wasn't like a Polaroid and Barry could print out a little thing, but their sense of the circle around everybody up on the hill and off by the hog farm mm -hmm. and behind the stage, uh, incredible. When we saw this in the screening room later when it, everything got printed and we were looking at it in context, uh, we were overwhelmed. We continue yeah. to be overwhelmed. Yeah. You know? Well, it, yeah. And, and you think about, like you said, the way you guys were just in the trenches, the, the, how the poetry of having all of the rain too, do you think it would have been the same experience without the rain? Did that sort of bring people together? It was glue. It was not rain. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people. I mean, people were up there with this sense of camaraderie anyway. Yeah. You know, they looked around and they said, "Oh my goodness, there are other people like me." I didn't think there were this many people. I thought I was pretty much alone. But look around, you know, and you saw boys, girls, young men, young women. You saw them together and they began this aggregation of soul of spirit of camaraderie i had been a fan of antoine de saint-exupéry the the french author who wrote about night flights in in the andes you know it was all in the second world war it was this sense of you can't do it without somebody else you have an interdependent relationship right. it is the social contract that binds us together binds us together with creatures and critters and climate change issues. I mean, way back into the age of enlightenment. I mean, that's what I was kind of bringing in my stupid mentality to yeah. this. But you saw it in action with individuals taking responsibility for themselves and for their neighbor. Wavy Gravy said that we got to keep feeding each other. Max Yasker said, you know, you've got the respect of the world for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, the festival organizers who did not have police, P-O-L-I-C-E, -E, they had police, P-U-L-E-E-Z-E, -E -E, police. That was the mantra. Amen. You know, so yeah. would it be nice that we could hear Hendrix play that Star Spangled Banner again? What does... What is he saying? What does he mean mm -hmm. in the way in which he's playing that? That's what haunts me. That's what haunts me. He got it. He did. And you had to know, I would imagine, at the time as he took stage. And I mean, that's a sense you get watching the movie, too. You, you, you had to have been so moved at that time, too, and just realizing how he so perfectly... Uh, just expressed the sentiment of those three days, four days leading up to that point as well. And everything that it meant. Vietnam, you know, people, you hear soldiers trudging through the rain and the mud in Vietnam. And that's another part I, I just find so amazing about the connection to Vietnam as well. But did you realize at the time just how epic his performance was too? Both yes and no. You know, it's... it's as I listen to it again, and if I've listened to it dozens and dozens of times, 
not only in the first screening rooms when we put it up, but in all subsequent screenings in Leicester Square in London, in New York, out here, uh, in Hawaii. I, I've been there uh, when it was played in Hawaii. Um, you cannot escape this sense that he was asking for forgiveness for what he was about to do. If you look carefully, he says a couple of things like, I haven't been feeling well recently and um, I'm feeling something strange is happening to me. And to me, it is the sense that the transformation in our country as a result of the 1960s and the revolts and the rages in the cities is getting to him and he's trying to figure out a way of expressing it. And he doesn't quite know and he hasn't rehearsed this and he hasn't really told his band what he is about ready to do. So what does he do? He takes his guitar off as he's left-handed um, and he says, excuse me while I kiss the sky. <laughs> now, I mean, that's not like asking for a Coke you know, or a hamburger or anything else like this. This is for this guy who started playing a guitar when he got a, a broom handle from his father in Seattle and he started figuring out how to, I mean, that was his invisible guitar, his air guitar. Don't you think that this Seer, S-E-E-R, this observer of the human condition who had dropped 54 paratroop jumps and who had flown with the U.S. Uh, Air Force right. and who had obviously been in the streets, he didn't know what he was saying. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Who is he talking to? What lord, lords, shamans? Who is he talking to? And with that, he's like a supplicant at a requiem, in a church, in a synagogue. He's out in the middle of the sequoias. His you know, source, yeah. I need you because I'm about ready to do something that I might be a little radical and maybe you're just going to have to listen you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. And then he begins to play. And if you look at the way he plays, it's three minutes, 46 seconds. The first two or three lines are just ordinary as though he were in primary school. Stars bang, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? Nothing extraordinary, nothing outrageous nothing because he's beckoning all of us in yes to want to take it because now he's got us in the palm of his hands and we're in the palms of each other's hands and then he begins to take us not only 
with a screeching and yelling and bop dropping and voices and, and whale voices, I think, and screeches and yells. And he's taking us not only to Vietnam, he's taking us to all of the cities that have been revolting because of the white supremacy that we were feeling that was being implemented even in the 1960s and in the 50s and in the 40s in the army and in the 30s in redlining and in the 20s. And he's going back to, believe it or not, I think 19 or 1619. Okay. He is transporting us in that little capsule of musical screeching and yelling and excoriation. Mm -hmm. He's taking us back to the time when blacks were brought over in chains. Wow. And he's saying, God, this is the way the flag has been manipulated since 1619. And then he comes to a stop. And what does he do? for what amounts to 15 notes, no longer in a minor key, because everything else that he's been doing up to this point is really strident and in a minor key and excoriated, and it's deafening and your ears are bursting and your brain is bursting and your soul is wondering, what the hell is this guy doing mm -hmm. to us and for us and about us? He says, stop, now listen. Day is done, gone the sun, from the lakes, from the hill, from the sky, 15 notes, five triplets, major chord, the same goddamn notes. It's a repetitive syndrome. This is like a symphony where the second movement is 15 notes long. He's playing taps. Yeah. He's saying that everything that I've just described up to this point marks death for our society, for the democracy that we think we're creating. Mm -hmm. It's dead. It's gone. It's bye-bye. And then what does he do? He has another maybe 40 seconds. He comes out of the taps and he starts again like he was in the first part, but he says, ha-ha, I'm out of minor key after the first 12 seconds, and I'm now going to go into a major key. Hmm. He modulates, he becomes the Beethoven Ode to Joy. He becomes the Verdi Requiem Lux Eterna. He's taking us, I think, to MLK's promised land, or he's taking us to John Lewis's beloved community. He's taking us to where Aretha reigns with R-E-S-P-E-C-T. <laughs> and he's saying, God damn it, country. Why keep killing each other, depriving us, spending all this money on bombs and this other stuff when we have education and healthcare and redlining and hospitality and, and education and housing and healthcare. How about all these other things? We can do it. Yeah. That becomes the third movement of his Star Spangled Banner. 
And I think every time I hear a headline today, whether it is the Haitians going back to their homes under, you know, being flown out from underneath that bridge or Kabul, any other headline, I mean, Colin Kaepernick, John Thomas, yeah, Muhammad Ali, that whole series about Muhammad Ali, he just caught Malcolm X pleading yeah. for this MLK, RFK, JFK. Yeah. All that we have lost, it's possible. Can we bring it back together again? Our film, our little film, three hours, four minutes later, the three hour, 45 minute version is a paean to peace, to respect, to protest, so that Colin Kaepernick can get down on his knee forever. Mm -hmm. And we can appreciate what it is he's talking about and yeah. what he is representing. Yeah. It's so relevant still. And it I, is absolutely yeah. relevant. It yeah. is a it is a it is a political platform, if you will. Yeah. You know, what do I know? I'm just I'm just one guy and I have my experience with him. Yeah. And his music and what he does. Yeah. I'd love a big Rashomon experience where hundreds, what did Mike Lang say, 50,000? No, I'll take 500,000. Where 500,000 people join in and we create a what Jimi Hendrix means to me today mm -hmm. group. Yeah. What do taps mean? How do we use this? How do we stop what we're doing to each other? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, what, what really, thank you for that, Dale. I mean, that's, that's such a, just to know that it's somebody actually who's speaking from being there and having that experience. It's one thing to watch it, but to actually have been there at the time too. I'm so amazed that you would think the ego of a, a typical artist, he wouldn't want to, wouldn't have wanted to wait till the end, especially when this thing got delayed and that's what always fascinated me too. I thought, well, how come Jimmy didn't just say, you know, I'm the I'm the headliner. Can you just this has been ah, delayed for but, a day, but no. But he's the summer up. Yeah. He yes. summed up the entire week. Yes. The entire concept that Joel Ro uh, Rosenman and John Roberts and Mike Lang and Artie Kornfeld came up with. Mm-hmm. It was peace, love, and music. They had to move from place to place. I mean, it was Max Yasker's farm was the fourth place or the fifth place, God knows. Yeah. They had to find and discover Max Yasker, and he had to discover them and himself. Yeah. Um, the chipmunks and the Stan Cohens of the world and the John Morrises of the world, all of these people. I mean, they were just, they were extraordinary. This could never happen. Again, no. Mike Lang has tried, and no way, no Jose, Jose, yeah. no enchilada, nada. Don't even yeah. try. Yeah. Scorsese writes, Martin Scorsese, my dear friend and colleague, he writes in the foreword that you can never do this again. In the foreword to both books of mine, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is an impossible dream. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, is it just the culture now? I mean, um, I don't know. I guess it's just that's what makes it so epic, too, is that 
It's never, there was never anything like it. There never will be anything like it. And if Jimmy hadn't never, played at the end, it wouldn't have happened. So this was a convergence of dynamic forces that could never be replicated again. Yeah. You're never going to have that gargantuan bucket of, of lyrics. Yeah. And of people who sing. Joan Baez standing in the rain, in the rain. Yeah. Coming down, she takes her guitar off. She is singing a cappella to mm -hmm. 500,000 people. Yeah. And her voice is as pure as moonlight, stars. <laughs> Sly and the Family Stone saying, gonna take you higher, higher. Sly had been at Summer of Soul. He, his performance was on July 29th, and he sang, Gonna Take You Higher. He felt, and I think Jimi Hendrix knew from Sly and or other people who had been at Summer of Soul, mm -hmm. that things were changing. Charlene Hunter-Galt wrote in the New York Times, a young reporter, wrote in the New York Times using the label black rather than Negro. And her, her point of view was, things are changing. There was a guy called, I, what's his name? Bob Dylan, who kept saying, things <laughs> they, times they are changing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. My business partner, Harry Weiland, shot this film with Johnny Cash. And who is the guy who wants to audition for Johnny Cash? Bob Dylan. Oh, I mean, my. There are things, this is 1968, 69. Charlene Hunter-Gold wrote a 10-page memo to Abe Rosenthal, the editor, the executive editor of the New York Times, saying, this is what is going on in our culture, in our society. The black person is assuming greater responsibility for himself. White supremacy has got to get away. Allow the blacks, not the Negroes, to emerge as human beings, respectable human beings, which is what they are in the first place, is just that everything else, all the other glasses that whites have been using mm -hmm. to perceive them. I learned this from Gordon Parks. I learned this when I was in college. I went to a white college. I didn't participate in any of the fraternities. I couldn't stand them. They, to me, were not who I was. I had been hitchhiking and riding freight trains out through the west of the country in order to find other people who were not like me. Others, yes. Others, the otherism, if you will. Yeah. So I took all of my meals in Princeton, New Jersey at Princeton University in the black neighborhood and was befriended by blacks who would take me into their homes occasionally saying, come on, here's our daughter. Here's our aunt. Here's our sister. Would you like a hamburger? Come, I've got the best mince pie in town. Wow. And of the people who, from whom I got telegrams when I graduated, three were from the black community. Wow. Zero. Zero from my friends or my families in the white community. Wow. Gordon Parks said, you want to tell a story? Pick up a camera. Mm -hmm. And Gordon, Gordon and I were buddies. I gave him his first job as a, as a film director in 1966 mm -hmm. with David Myers, as a matter of fact. So David and Gordon and I were in Harlem 
uh, together right after the riots of 67 in Harlem. What did your parents think about you? Because this was when you were still in high school, hitting hitting the rails. My parents and- were so preoccupied. My mother was basically an alcoholic. And so she spent a lot of time with a bottle in her hand or a, a thing. And she loved mirrors. Okay. <laughs> oh. Oh. So- oh. She really loved mirrors. And my father was, was so busy and frenetic by the divorce, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to keep up and having his own uh, illnesses. Okay. Uh, and luckily, he made some good decisions for me, with me, okay. about me, and the other two kids. But our family was five shards scattered in the oh, wind. Yeah. Will of the wisps. Nothing. Yeah. So I was constantly in this quest for finding a home. Okay. Could I find a home? Could I find a family mm-hmm. that I could identify with? be compatible with yeah they're in the book yeah and that's i was just gonna say you did find a family yes you know obviously for a um a truly um it's something that really brings you together in a way that i don't know if even a family could do i mean that is just it's so fascinating the amount of work that had to go into this to make this happen to the, the amount of man hours the sacrifice and um it's it's mind-boggling really um i just i i don't know if i i want this conversation to end i'm just looking at my my clock here i'm almost thinking we might have to do a part two because there's so much more that could be covered as well um uh, be my guest call set it up yeah i, I absolutely i think we, i want to just you know i like I said, I'd, and we've had, well, this is about as long as usually our episodes go, which I am, I don't have a problem continuing, but I think maybe if we could consider doing a part two, that would be great. Um, I want to definitely... I want to tell just one other little story. Go ahead. Because, feel free. Because yeah. there's, a, there's a possibility. It's in a, it's in a way... A, it's, it's almost too big. It's almost too big a story to, to tell. But I, then tell it by all means. <laughs> and here's 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 just a little hint of something. Anyway, okay. In the in the seventies, after the movie was made, and it got out and distributed, and I was struggling trying to find work again. And Marty and I, uh, Marty invited me to be its assistant director on Mean Streets. Okay. You know, marvelous. And I then became his producer of the Italian Americans, the film about his family and how he grew up. Because part of me, I really kind of consider that part of me is Jewish, part of me is black, part of me is Italian, part of me is French, part of me is Spanish, part of me is Russian. I took multiple languages because I wanted to be like the Contiki man, Tor Heyerdahl, whose book I read when I was 10 or 11. And that was one of the great infusions in my spirit. But I just wanted to be a a person of the world. And I was so gratified that Marty would invite me to go to the kitchen with Charles, his dad, Charlie, and, and Catherine, his mom. And then Thelma lost work. She did not have work in around 1974. I happened to 
have a project that was thrust upon me. It was dealing with Muhammad Ali. And we had a lot of footage and it had to be edited into a one hour film or special of some kind. <clears throat> so I asked her, called her. She was in San Quentin, not in the, in the jail, but she and her boyfriend were outside uh, San Quentin. And I said, I've got, a, I've got a possible gig for you. And she said, I'm just going down uh, to sign for unemployment. I said, well, can you get on the next airplane and come to New York? She said, yeah, are you going to pay me? I said, yeah, you know, we'll, you'll get some money. She said, okay, I'm on the next plane. And of course, she showed up. That one piece of camaraderie, that tentacle between me and Marty and, and Thelma, because Marty in 75 offered me the job to be his assistant director on Taxi Driver, and I couldn't accept it because the Directors Guild prohibited me from changing my category oh. from production manager to assistant director. Okay. Right? So I had to find other work, you know, scratch around. But I also was able to find Thelma some work, which in turn led to my finding some work at WQED in Pittsburgh, working on National Geographic specials and a whole batch of other things. And at the time, Marty said, do you know where Thelma is? Because he and Thelma had lost touch with each other. And I was saying, I said, Marty, guess what? You know, she's in the next editing room. <laughs> I'll get. So that whole unity mm -hmm. that was forged on those four days in August, we were able to reciprocate with each other, Thelma, me, Marty, in order to allow Thelma and Marty to achieve what no two directors and editors have ever achieved in the history of the motion picture business. Mm -hmm. Far more than Arthur Penn and Debbie Allen. And the Academy Museum just opened up. Barry Levine was there. He has a big 10-foot photo that he took of Thelma editing, black and white photo, great photo, uh, editing on a chem flatbed editing machine up in our first site. It is this unity of time mm -hmm. that collapses all of our lives to the essential ingredients that I'm going to say Aretha talks about in R-E-S-P-E-C-T, that Tom Taggart talks about as a Porter Sandman, and that Jimmy talks about, and that Richie Havens talks about, which is freedom, freedom, and give me an ass this country, Joe, and yeah. Joan Baez, and Sly. You know, it's, there is a knot, mm -hmm. a K-N-O-T. Yes. You know, that we all belong to. Synchronistic. And it's a, an incredible experience, an incredible experience. And, and this is still to this day, it is considered, is, and it's based on viewings. It's like the number one documentary film that's ever been made. Period. Yeah. Period. And that's based on like distributorship worldwide and, and all of that, right? Wow. And, and not only in theaters, but also on uh, a television. For a while, it was on public television used as a fundraiser. Okay. You know, I mean, you'd play it at night and you interrupt it and mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, you'd, you'd pitch for dollars and then, you know, you close that window and you go on your place, lie in the family stone. Yeah. You know, kind of a thing. And I happened to be at one point in, uh, in Berkeley. I was working with uh, Al Giddings and Peter Goober on the first reality series dealing with oceans, Ocean Quest for NBC. And they heard I was there, or I heard they were going to do this on KQED. And I went in, and in between the breaks, I would be pitching for dollars for the station, but also telling stories about how we got to here and how we got to there and how we got to mm -hmm. this place and what happened there and how it is impossible. But yes, we did it. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'd mentioned to you before, I, I'm surprised that. Um, there isn't a, a Woodstock podcast. There's so much rich information. And you had talked about being on a Zoom call with uh, with your associates and people that had had that experience as well. And and it's obvious just by talking about it. There's there's just so many angles, so many aspects to it that you could go on and on. So um, I, I want to encourage, uh, before I forget, to any of our listeners, if you have not seen the movie... And also pick up Dale's book too. Here you go, um, Hawk Away. Hawk. Yeah, we've got this, this version. Here. We got them both. There we go. So really thick, wonderful stories, wonderful people. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, may I be so bold as to stay? Can you see that? This is yours truly, Bob Maurice mm -hmm. and Michael. Wow. You look a little younger, not not much, but a not little bit. Not much. Actually, <laughs> just about the same weight, almost. Believe it or not. That's great. That is great. I I can say with pride, I weigh what I did when I graduated high school. So <laughs> I think we had talked about that. I like running, and you were doing stairs the day I I talked to oh, you. Oh yeah, you listen on the phone. I've run. I've counted something like twenty thousand miles in my life. Wow. Wow. Well, see, it pays. It, it pays to put in it some pays. time. Yeah, definitely. Pay. Well, this has been a, a, a while in the making. We have talked back and forth and emailed and tried to figure out Zoom. Dale and I were supposed to get together a couple of weeks ago, and for some reason, it just wasn't meant to be that day. But uh, hopefully it is working properly today. We will no, check. No, otherwise we're going to have to repeat word for word. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We may have to do that again. But uh, it's, like, it's like going back and trying to sync up the dailies. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I'm sure it would be just as um, inspired again as it is now. And just to have this opportunity, I want to thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dale. And right. thanks everybody for listening. Thank you. Bye.